The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal Piston Rings. My name is Joe Costello and we have got another great episode for you. Joining me as co-host on this episode, he's back, Lake Speed Jr. Lake, welcome back, how are you? Oh, thank you, Joe. Yeah, it's been a while, you know, but I've been listening intently. You and Keith have had some great guests on recently. It's it's fun to be a listener of the podcast, not just a participant, but, you know, I, I will gladly take uh, my my turn at the co-host chair today and see if we can't do a good job. Well, I think it's actually breaking down in a very interesting way. Like Keith kind of comes on with the, you know, the drivers and drag racing and engine builders. You kind of come on with the scientists and the uh, metrologists and uh, people in the NASCAR universe, right? There's like a nice, everybody's got their domain over there at Total Seal. That's a great saying, right? You know, the episode we did with Dr. Neil Cantor earlier in the year, Actually, he's very popular. In fact, within the STLE crowd, uh, I was at the STLE. And STLE, just for people that want to know, is a Society of Tribologists and Lubrication Engineers. It's the Oil Nerd Annual Convention. It was last week, and I got to go there, and it was fun, and people mentioned the podcast. So there you go, Hidden Horsepower, reaching a whole new demographic. Wow, that's great. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about attacking the right uh, person with the right subject at the right time. But really, everybody wants to know, how did the Lake Speed autograph session go at the Tribologist Convention? (laughs) Well, the, the great thing is I actually ran into our guest today at the event, and I didn't even know he was there. But it was like we were sitting in the same session because we had the same interest. So I was like, hey. We should bring you on Hidden Horsepower again for your own episode because he was with us for one of the PRI episodes with Brad Lagman. So um, that's why I say, hey, Mark, can you be on? And so here we are today to bring Mark Malberg onto Hidden Horsepower to really dig deep into surface finish, texture, shape. I mean, Mark's a brilliant, brilliant guy uh, that is. His work is phenomenal. I was actually was looking at some uh, projects today, and I'm looking at parameters that he created. So when we're talking surface finish, there's no one better to be speaking with than Mark Malberg. So let's bring him on. Instead of just talking about him in front of him, which I'm sure he loves, from Digital Metrology, Mr. Mark Malberg again on Hidden Horsepower, but this time his own feature. Mark, welcome. How are you? Fantastic. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to sit here and listen to you guys talk like that. You know, I'm just a regular guy that even dressed like Lake during STLE. There's a pic online. It's like we got the same memo. The next tribologist's uniform. That's right. Exactly. exactly. No, I, I, I think it's great. And I was following you guys on social, of course. That tells you a lot about me. Uh, but I thought it was funny <laughs> that you guys buddied up. But the point is, this is knowledge that people need people that are in these fields people that are interested you're pushing the envelope with what the understanding is about surface finish and you guys are are, i don't know if you're blazing a trail or you're following a trail but the bottom line is you're interested and you're going after it 
Yeah, and I yeah. think it's it's really ripe timing. I know Lake is, is, is out in the forefront really opening eyes for a lot of people. I've come at this from a, a more industrial base where, where big companies have kind of already been there. They've had to be pushed because of things like emissions, where now all of that learning is helping us push performance in the racing world. Isn't that interesting, Joe? You know, for years it was always – the racing guys that would, you know, R and D out these new parts and, and kind of do the proof of concept and the OEMs that kind of notice, Oh, this is going on over here in racing. Now it'll trickle its way into production cars. But in this case, it's actually the reverse. We have engineering that's been fundamental in production vehicles for a while now, making its way into racing. I think it's kind of cool to see the, um, the two-way street now forming between uh, industry and motorsports and how it can be beneficial for both sides. It's a leapfrog kind of thing, isn't it? One leads for a while and the other leads for a while. And it's great that we now have these lines of communication between the two, even through things like STLE. What's interesting is Billy Godbold was the first one to ever say that on Hidden Horsepower Lake, that it was actually emissions standards that forced these... OE manufacturers to start looking into all of this. Otherwise, if that standard hadn't been put out there, like some crazy number that they had to hit, they would not have received the motivation to go into all of these areas that now are reaping the benefits. I think that's also just shocking and mind-blowing and certainly contrary to you know normal logic. Oh, it is. And I don't think we're done. Uh, when we were at the STLE conference last week, uh, there were a couple of gentlemen from uh, Nissan, were there uh, giving the keynote speech, and they were talking about well, what does the future look like? And uh, looking all the way out to say 2050, well, there's an electric car in their future. I'm actually they make the Nissan Leaf now, but what they said was, well, we don't can't tell you for certain that's a battery electric vehicle in the future. It might be uh, a hydrogen fuel cell, uh, but we also know that. We're going to be basically building higher efficiency internal combustion engines for probably another 20 or 30 years. Uh, we want to take regular internal combustion and do things like, in their case, variable compression. And they were speaking uh, about how they had inter- introduced uh, you know, plasma spray bore, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about you know, the spray bore coatings and things and how that uh, relates to surface finish during this episode. So I don't want to give all the way right now, but they also mentioned you know, they're running uh, DLC-coated lifters, and they were texturing those lifters in order to have better efficiency, especially longer life, uh, lower friction. Well, DLC coatings have been used in NASCAR for at least 20 years at this point. So this is one of those cases where you had that symbiosis, that two-way street between industry and racing where racing pioneered something that's made its way in into production vehicles but now that some of that production technology is going to head back into racing vehicles because their whole point is we need to have higher efficiency engines whether that engine is actually driving the car or whether that engine is actually creating electricity for an electric car where it's a they call it a series parallel where there's a still an internal combustion engine but it's there just to generate electricity 
and they see that as a step. Of course, as a standalone uh, engine to be actually a generator, if you will, it can be very, very efficient. So that's the whole goal. So that's what I'm thinking is that it's been great to see this evolution the last 10 years of that uh, symbiosis between industry and motorsports. I think we're going to see that grow in the next 10 years and conferences like STLE and what we're doing a webinar uh, with them uh, in about two weeks, actually, uh, about this topic of how can racing help support industry in the growth in tribology? How can we make engines more efficient? I think we can make them a lot more efficient. And I'm excited about Mark's and his take because that's really the key to unlocking that hidden horsepower. I know pun, 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 bad pun. I get it. But that hidden horsepower can really be unlocked through surface finish technology, not just having whatever surface your machining process left you, but creating a surface finish that's engineered, that provides better performance, better durability. That's what we're talking about today. I, I, well, I think that's that's absolutely the case, and it's interesting because we've kind of the two industries have come at things um, almost two different ways. If you think about racing, it's about containing combustion, getting the most out of the fuel. Um, in the production world of you know on the road vehicles, we've almost come the other way of really trying to control the oil to not let it get up and combust and make dirty exhaust. So in either case, we're working with that seal, that piston ring. And both of us were trying to optimize it. Now, I say both of us because most of my customer base has been, you know, high-volume production engines, and I only get to, to dabble in the fun stuff of racing. But in either case, and it's it's this this combustion containment that we're all fighting or, or trying to optimize, and it really does come down to looking beyond the obvious. I mean, the obvious is make a bore with a certain roughness. Well, anybody can make a bore of a certain RA roughness, a certain average roughness, but where we can differentiate ourselves, whether it's in production or in racing, is by optimizing that texture. And that's where I think we're all trying to get there, and we may actually all end up in the same place because it is optimizing a ceiling surface against a piston ring. Well, and that, that idea of that optimal surface, right, for seal, it really goes back to the fact that oil is the gasket between the piston ring and the cylinder wall. And it's no different than what uh, Nissan was talking about with their textured DLC-coated uh, cam follower, is that they need to have oil in between that cam lobe and that cam follower in order to lubricate that cam follower. But they've created this texture. So DLC is diamond-like carbon. And it is a very hard, very low-friction coating that uh, adheres to that surface of, the, of that lifter. Again, we used them in NASCAR for a very long time. It's fantastic durability, very low friction, but you still have to retain uh, oil on that surface. We learned the hard way in NASCAR. Uh, we didn't have uh, contact like Mark back when I was at Gibbs, and we just know that we, as we started polishing the camshafts and making them smoother – things got better so if a little is good well more must be better right so we just polished them mirror smooth and got the the ra the roughness average less than two well then we started burning cams up 
because he didn't have enough oil retention. So he had this surface so smooth that there was basically be, be, be began to have what's called adhesion. There's nothing. There's no lubricant trap there to keep the two parts from wanting to stick to each other. Well, you know, the flip side of that spectrum is adhesion, where it's so rough it becomes like coarse sandpaper and it's just ripping at the surface. So back to Nissan, what have they done? They've created a very low friction engineered surface with the correct texture to retain the oil to lubricate that component. On the piston ring side, what Mark was talking about is that we need this engineered surface that can hold the oil to both lubricate the piston ring and the cylinder wall, but also function as the seal. Because if there's no oil on the cylinder wall, that when that piston ring is moving so quickly as it's skiing down it, it has to have that oil film in order to provide the gasket, if you will. You know, just like there's an engine. You've got a cylinder head and you've got a block. Well, it's the ga- head gasket that helps to seal between the two. Think of oil as the gasket. Think of these surface textures as the reservoirs that can hold that oil to make it available to do that job. And that's what, you know, what Mark's talking about, which is why, and I'll let Mark explain why the RA, the roughness average, isn't a really good guide to what your surface is. It can, it can tell you one thing about the surface, but it's not going to be able to tell you, you all the things you need to know about that surface. Right, like it, it's a case where if we're really going to optimize a surface, we're not just going to choose making it rough or smooth. It's making it the right kind of rough. For example, we wouldn't want a surface that looks like a spiky dog collar. So a surface that has downward valleys, not upward spikes, uh, is, is very important. So if we can start to think of a, a cylinder bore surface really as an upper surface that we're going to slide on and a lower surface for carrying lubrication and collecting garbage, we can start optimizing both sides. Come up with peaks that are nice for sliding, come up with valleys that are nice for oil and garbage collection. And then we start walking that line of how much of each do you need for each application. And and each engine, um, even within, you know, a range of products, a range of horsepowers, that balance may be different. Uh, I like to think of it as um, tuning what are the two honing processes, peaks and valleys, and what are the two things the engine needs, peaks and valleys, and matching those things up. So matching a process to a shape that's going to give you the performance you want out of that particular engine. Now, we have kind of a a theory in, in the production side of engines where we want that oil film to you know, seal the piston ring all the way up to top dead center, and then the last micro drop of oil is gone at top dead center, and the only thing that combusts is fuel. There's no longer any oil in the interface at that last moment, and that last little bit of oil is blown down by combustion gases, which do not go past the ring. So it's this interesting balance of keeping things lubricated until right at the point of combustion. Because if you do have oil sitting between the ring and the bore at combustion, it's going to burn. So there's this magic act of designing that surface 
And an interesting fact, I work in all of surface finishes. I mean, I work on you, you name it, whether it's consumer products, electronics, engines. And of all of the surfaces that are studied and researched around the world, there are more papers published on cylinder bores than anything else. The most <laughs> engineered surface in the world is a cylinder bore. Wow. So it's got to freak you out when you see somebody with like a 220 grit dingle ball hone just going to town in the back of the truck. <laughs> you're making me. You're making me cringe, my friend. <laughs> well, Where's you know, the control? <laughs> right. So you know, it's interesting. Is um, you know, last month, Joe, I got to go over to the UK, uh, and we did a little trip around and uh, visited some of our customers over there, and we happened to stop at the National Rail Museum. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Just bear with me for a second. So the National Rail Museum there in York, England, has all of these old steam engines. So what people may not know is the piston ring was actually invented in 1852 for a steam locomotive. Wait, so way before there was ever even an internal combustion engine, there were piston rings. And where I'm going with this is, you know, for years, cast iron rings were what people had, and this was, they, was the commonplace. Well, then someone came up with the great idea of putting hard chrome on the face of the ring. It was still an iron ring to begin with, but you had a chrome face. But that was the interface between the ring and the cylinder wall was this hard chrome. And that's where some of these ideas of hone it rough came from, because someone listened to maybe, like, okay, I hear what you guys are saying, but you know, we've always done this and we had good luck with it or a good experience. Okay, we need to understand that the ring metrology, what what uh, material it is, what um, coatings are on that ring, have everything to do with the oil you use and the surface finish of the home. It's a package. Uh, you know, Joe's heard me say this before. It's ring steel soup. It's not steak. It's a combination of all those things. So you have to look at these packages, and I think that's where sometimes this can be uh, confusing or overwhelming to people. Like you said, Mark, it's the most studied, most published thing is cylinder bore finish. Well, why? Well, one of the reasons why is we've, we have this variable that's been occurring over time, which is the advent of you know steel rings and different ring coatings. So you go from this old just cast iron ring to a uh, – a cast iron ring with a chrome face coat. Well, that chrome face coating needed a different surface finish than regular cast iron. Well, then you go, you know, to molly face rings where you you're spraying in this molly coating because that's not as hard as chrome, so it's not as sensitive to breaking. Because as anybody knows, you know, old chrome rings, man, you have to do everything right and make sure you didn't even think about the word synthetic oil for your rings to break in. So you even thought about synthetic oil. With a chrome ring, it wouldn't break in. It was, you know, it just couldn't do it. Well, then the Molly rings came along and things got better. But then as cylinder pressures began to rise and we got, you know, more horsepower per cubic inch, well, then the, the Molly began to find its limits. Well, then we came up with steel rings. And then within steel rings, you've got different PVD coatings. Back to the how do you have that durability of that ring, that last micro inch of ring travel where it doesn't combust. Well, you have to have the correct coating on the ring to provide that lubricity because you can't hold the oil because then it would burn. So it's the evolution of the ring materials and coatings 
that have necessitated an evolution in cylinder bore finish. And then we throw the other variable in there, which is the oil itself. You go from old school mineral-based oils to synthetic oils. You go from straight grade oils to now you know, 020s and 520s, even 016 from the factories. All of these things have to be factored in. So uh, as we were in one of the meetings last week, Mark, and the guy's like, why can't we just put one number on this? It's like, you can't. There's too many variables, right? You can't put one number on the surface. You can't put one number on on the rings or the oil interface because it's it's dynamic, which makes it fun, by the way. I love it um, because there's so much opportunity here, Joe. If you think about, you know, say pro stock racing and what those guys are trying to do, how tight that class is where if, if you literally found a tenth of a second, you dominate the class. If you found – you know, four hundredths of a second, you're really, really dominant in, in in that class. So any kind of advantage you can find by adjusting that soup, that's important. That's big. So I think that's why this topic is so fascinating to so many people. And we hear people ask about this when we see them in the field. That, oh, the podcast, we love talking about honing. It's like, all right, we got to get Mark on here and really begin to talk about these numbers. So, Mark, why don't you tell them, okay, that RA, like you mentioned, isn't the right number. What, what are the right numbers, and what, how should we think about surface finish? Yeah, that's a it's a it's a great question because so I mentioned I work with people all over the world and everywhere I go, not just you know engines. People think of roughness as a number. How rough is it? And roughness isn't a number any more than decibels tells me what band was playing. It, roughness mm. RA is just a number that says on the average how much are we wiggling up and down. And just like decibels is the amount of sound pressure, it could be a fire truck, a chainsaw, or a symphony. So to truly describe a surface, we're going to need more than just a single number. I tell people the first place to go beyond RA is the graph. And I know, like, you, you post pics of profilometers and graphs all the time, and it, it just makes me happy inside. It warms my heart <laughs> to see that it's the picture that matters. And um, fun fact, the numbers vary. If I make a trace and then move over a couple thousandths of an inch and make another trace, it's an entirely different surface, especially with a crosshatched surface. Um, mm -hmm. You think of a trace where you cross two valleys, move over a little bit, and you, mount, you might now trace through the intersection and only see one valley. So the numbers are going to move around, and people will say, I can't use a gauge that doesn't repeat. We have to remember the surface doesn't repeat depending on where you look at it. So first move beyond RA is the graph. I've found more and more people telling me they gain far more understanding by seeing how the picture varies, much more so than the numbers. Now, that's, that's unpopular because I know we need numbers for contracts and we need numbers for process control and we need the numbers. So the next move is to choose the numbers that reflect your shape. 
Um, okay. In, in the, the digital metrology uh, plateau honing introduction that you mentioned. So in surface notes on digitalmetrology.com, um, there's a talk on plateau honing. There's, there's one in resources. You guys have seen the links and posted them as well, so thank you for that. But it talks about three different shapes of plateauing or three different shapes really of honing. A surface that's kind of random, it's up and down. And then a surface that has a little bit more valley than it does peak. It kind of looks like some of the peaks might be knocked off, but it's hard to tell. And then there's the extreme surface. It looks like um, one guy described it as icicles hanging off your roof. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry for you people in the south. Sorry, Joe. Have you ever seen an icicle, Joe? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> That's the thing with it. I know what a popsicle is, though. I Popsicles, yeah, right, I know. Popsicles. Icicles, um, not so much. Very different. Very, very different. Um, yeah, think of, uh, what, stalagmites, stalactites, whatever. So a surface mm -hmm. that's crazy flat on top, broken up by valleys. Those three kinds of surfaces, the random one, the little bit too processed, you know, plateau-ish, and then the super-duper plateau, are going to require three different ways of describing them with numbers. But basically, we're going to describe peaks and valleys separately. The RK family of parameters is super popular. It works for the middle class of surface, where we have RPK talking about the peaks that are going to get knocked off during break-in or worn away during break-in. RK is that running surface we're going to live on, and RVK describes the valleys. Um, there's a lot more detail there, but that general trend of thinking of the pieces of the surface. When we get more extreme, there's a different set of parameters we can talk, you know, in a different deep dive that are the Q family of parameters that are for extremely plateaued surfaces. But we need numbers to describe shapes, and there's never a single number like RA that gets us there. Um, what I found was super interesting, Lake, um, on this topic of parameters was our conversation, I think, over a really sweaty, hot, humid lunch outdoors where we were talking about break-in and mm -hmm. how, you know, we can totally change the break-in dynamics with surface texture. And you'd experienced that recently yourself. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, in fact, even a conversation I had today uh, with a very successful um, – team, uh, very successful driver, mentioned that, oh, you know what, I had set in on one of y'all's, you know, trackside tech talks that we do, Joe, um, and he listened to what we were talking about, and he went back and he applied some of the lessons that we talked uh, at that trackside tech talk, and sure enough, they have better consistency on braking, whereas before, you know, Maybe said maybe seventy percent of the engines, you know, ran perfect right out of the gate, and maybe thirty percent of them there was something they had to chase or fight or you know, maybe never quite got the way there, and they could never really put their finger on why it was. Well, once they changed the surface finish, all of a sudden that variability of performance disappeared, gone. Now they all break in the same so yes there's a huge impact on on break-in just by affecting the surface finish values the test we did a couple weeks ago at ronnie shavers um on our little mule engine that we've you know beaten to death over all these years we had brad lagman uh change the home and 
as you said, we had more of that uh, extreme plateaued. Now, we had to go all the way to where uh, you've done some work, but we got it closer to that where we had, uh, you know, an RPK uh, in that, we'll call it 8 to, to 12 range. So we got median number of 10. And then we had the RK closer to 25 to 30. And then the RVK was in the 50 to 55 range. And that engine, I mean, it was sealed up from the time we turned it over. There was no breathing, nothing of that engine. And the blow-by was half of what it was previously. But previously, it was really good compared to what we had seen before or to average. So it was incredibly low. And everything had to do with that. All we did, all we changed from the previous test was just the surface finish. Nothing else changed, and we were able to cut blow by by 50%. So that was pretty crazy just to see that big of a change off just changing those three numbers. But really what you're saying is it's more than those three numbers. If, if you look at the previous graph, how inconsistent it was, that there was these ups and downs, it was very – that varied surface versus this pre this past surface, which was much more consistently plateaued with some deep valleys along the way. That's what made the big difference. Absolutely. And, and we see this in, in production engines, totally reducing break in time, but even more important in, you know, high volume is knowing that consistency. Um, we're not relying on let's roll the dice for 120 hours and see what the engine looks like then. Um, we know right <laughs> yeah. out of the box. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that yeah, I can see it from an OEM level how important it is because let's say you build 100,000 engines and you send them out the door. Well, that's 100,000 different customers. It's 100,000 different break-in procedures that will happen. Exactly. Um, right, right. And, you know, basically for you know, whatever the different uh, environments are, different thought processes, what does, you know, keep it under the red line mean to you? Well, some people mean that keep it at idle, and that's not good. You know, some guys are, well, it means it's 50 RPM under the red line. I'm good. There's all these, all these variables. So as the OEM, well, what's the outcome of that engine? How, how many of those make it um, 100,000 miles before having a problem uh, or have a blow-by issue? Well, if they can do things within their control of how they machine, what they use for rings and, and coatings and oil and surface finish, if they can change that soup, to reduce the impact of those 100,000 different customers and how they choose to go about doing break-in, that's a huge gain for them. Because if they just do it to, we call it the old way of a single finish and then put it out there and hope the customers use the right oil, do the right procedure and all that, that's a, that's a, that's a big wish right there. <laughs> They'll probably Good. see some of those yeah. come back to them. <laughs> A good friend of mine said growing up he was taught that if you want to break in an engine and you want the engine to be fast, drive it fast during break-in. <laughs> Where's the process control there? <laughs> if you want yeah, it to be slow, exactly. drive it slow. <laughs> There's 
some yeah. urban urban myths there. Oh, oh, and there and there are right, and he goes back to some some of them were founded within reason based on maybe during a certain period of time where there were certain um, coatings and surface finishes and lubricants of the day that was the right thing to do with what we knew at the time and the materials at the time. The problem is, like you said, these urban myths and legends persist, and then they get applied to a modern engine with different surfaces, different oils, different coatings, and that doesn't always work out. So the, the challenge is trying to come up with that surface that has very little break-in where what the customer does to it has very little influence on how it's ultimately going to function. Uh, because obviously we, we, we know that if we reduce blow-by, there's all kinds of great things that come from that. You know, one, the engine's more efficient. That's a, you know, so from a horsepower perspective, you got to love that. From an emission standpoint, that means, okay, there's less oil getting in there. All those those things get eliminated, which is a good thing. But also you get less contamination of your oil, which means your oil is going to work better and live longer. So reducing blow-by is just a good thing all around, um, period. So how do you do it? And you know, talk a little bit about, Mark, what you've seen in terms of the evolution of the honing techniques because – I think it's one thing that I've noticed in doing these these talks that gets people attention is the scale that's involved here. That we're yeah, not talking um, about hundreds of inches or even thousands of inches. So please go ahead. Oh yeah, I, and I think the the processes have evolved. Um, trying to keep up with things like performance. So honing over time was a single pass, uh, well, at least a single stone, to make things round, cylindrical, and smooth-ish for the piston ring to do the heavy lifting of, you know, final machining. And, you know, the 1980s, this concept of plateau honing came into existence, or at least it became kind of a, a process, a you know, a name for a, for something new where we, we honed it rough and smooth a little bit. But over time, we've refined that. We, we see, you know, incredible variations that different systems, different engines require. I was looking at an engine that's part of a, a generator set, a gen set, and a very, very different plateau. It was wide open, all kinds of big valleys, but a super smooth plateau. And so these textures have evolved based on applications. Um, this particular engine that I was looking at, I thought it was a mistake. Um, it had no material ratio. If you looked at it, it was all valleys, but the peaks were flat. It's just that it was a ton of valleys. And they were saying that's exactly the texture that's optimal for the durability that engine needed. Well, on the other hand, we can go all the way to the extreme of like an F1 sleeve or even we you know, touched on plasma where we're going for very, very, very smooth textures um, with just an optimal just enough in terms of valleys or porosity for lubrication and garbage collection. 
So it's hard to put my finger on an evolution because the path kind of splits. Once we learned that texture matters, different industries went in different directions to optimize their particular ring-to-bore interface. Now, one thing I don't want to leave in the dust here, because I talked about you know, a couple of weird, super smooth examples, is there is a point where we go too smooth. And the, the term I hear in the world of surfaces is, oh, I want to make that surface better. And better sounds like shinier to most people. <laughs> and you mentioned it with the DLC and other things. Smoother isn't always better. Um, we need some texture in places. One thing that happens in the bore to ring interface is if we go too smooth, the shape or the geometry or the roundness of the bore can be a big factor. If you have an out of round bore, and I'm not saying just oval, I'm talking about head bolts causing distortion, you know, little ripples along the, the roundness, mm-hmm. out of roundness is a killer if your roughness is too smooth. A smooth surface will not seal in. There's not the ability to machine away the peaks with the with the ring. So a bit of peak roughness is kind of a Band-Aid for bad roundness. Okay. That, make, that makes sense. You think about some of the uh, aluminum blocks, engines out there, uh, especially when they're trying to make them very large cubic inches so that everything gets really uh, thin walled, and, but you mm-hmm. still have high compression. So... Yeah. I, I need really large studs in there to hold all this together that localize distortion. Not that the cylinder is not round. It still looks round to the naked eye, but there's these localized distortions that if it's too smooth, as you're saying, the ring can't follow. There's there's nothing there for it to actually feel against. So you'll have higher blow-by. You'll have more wall consumption, things like that, because you need to create enough roughness, as you mentioned, to band-aid so it can find its own spot once that distortion's already in place. Right, right. You you have a little bit of fuzz all over the surface, and then you trim away the fuzz on top of the lumps. <laughs> and then you yeah. have uniform contact all over. Yeah. Joe, you know, Joe, who would be loving this right now is Nick Ferry, right? You think back up at the Nick Ferry episode uh, we did at PRI with you and Keith. I listened to that recently. And, you know, that's where he was kind of going with the whole hot honing thing that he he loves is that you're trying to closer simulate um, in the hone what the engine's going to be in its actual operating environment. That's why, you know, using a torque plate, uh, all these different things are designed to try to simulate what that bore will really see in terms of stresses and temperatures in the car. in, while it's in the home, that way you can get it closer so you don't have to band-aid it as much, I believe is probably the best way of looking at it. Would you agree, Mark? Absolutely. And it's not just you know simply slapping a torque plate on and torquing it down. It's even torquing in the same sequence as assembly and um, the same gasket under the torque plate as you're going to use in the application. There is a lot of magic. Um, I've seen cases where a wrongly applied torque plate actually causes more distortion when you go into the engine assembly. So I can totally believe it's a that. super important thing, um, yet it's, it's something that requires some, some real care as well. You know, last week one of the guys from Gehring uh, gave a talk I was able to watch, 
And it was really interesting to see that evolution that he talked about that, you know, in the 1970s when you had, you know, say chrome rings and things like that, how I had this, you know, single finish grit was was how it was. And yeah, the engines lived 50,000 miles before that had to be rebuilt. Well, then you leap forward to the 90s and you've got, you know, molly rings and um, the finishes begin to be like, begin to be plateaued uh and the cylinder can go a hundred thousand miles well now they have these you know the spray bore type cylinders with that porosity uh you know that more of that extreme plateau and you have uh, steel rings and now these cylinders are going 200 300,000 miles how as a as the evolution of honing and rings and all that have come together the longevity of these parts are going even further and now they are even looking on the OE level, okay, well, how do we replicate that outer roundness that's created um, by the distortion of the cylinder heads and the bolts and how they torque them and that, that whole process? And they were showing um, you know, some examples from um, the incometers, the pack gauge results of how much change and distortion there is. And, yeah, the top of those cylinders, especially near where the studs are, how they weren't even remotely close to round. They would be, you know, you think about this circle, and then essentially you would have like convex uh, protrusions, you know, into the cylinder because of that, which is like, you're, is this mind-blowing? How can that be? Well, part of that lake is the plot scaling. Um, I, there's there's more to unpack there because when we plot roundness, we could take a perfect – let's take a, a cue ball from your pool table. It looks spherical, and it is. It will roll. But when we do a roundness measurement in the world of metrology, we magnify errors. So even though it's convex, it may not be convex enough, and we plot it as concave. So – I live in the world of roundness. I do commercial roundness systems, and it blows my mind when I see a plot. And it's it's even hard for me after 30 years of this to unpack a roundness graph. Is that is that cylinder bore really concave and convex? Now it's it's still circular, but our plot distorts it. And you mentioned scale. That's a big deal. So if we think of a, a typical uh, cylinder bore roundnesses may be five microns so 200 millions might be our roundness that's the size of a smoke particle a home smoke detector <laughs> to, literally a home smoke detector detects five micron smoke particles if it's an optical detector so yeah one smoke particle lands inside your cylinder bore it's out of tolerance for roundness wow that that that's some scale and, and back to the honing part I, scale is one of those things that is uh one of the light bulb moments when we've given the trackside tech talks remember joe that when you when we say that a hundred micro inches is equivalent to one tenth of a thousandth that that people you kind of see their heads you know kind of pop back that, that wakes them up like, what did you just say they, we're talking about a, these valleys, and on a we'll call it a good uh, high performance cylinder finish. We're talking about that mean line to that deepest valley 
is usually about 100 micro inches, plus or minus, right, a little bit. Um, For them to understand that that entire surface finish is a tenth of a thousandth per side, which means on a dowelboard gauge, that's only two tenths of a thousandth. And the old way of honing, a lot of guys were taking out, you know, a thousandth or two with their final abrasive. So talk to that, Mark, a little bit about that scale and why it's so important to understand that scale when determining what abrasive you're going to finish with and then more importantly, how much stock removal you're going to do. Yeah, and um, I think that's something that we've learned over the years, and I, I love you know the fact that you were you were experiencing it also when, when we were talking last week. Um, what we're trying to do is you know in any efficient, cost-effective way, we don't want to remove a lot of material. That's wasted time, and you're just throwing the material away. So in, let me speak to high volume. In a high volume world, we would bore the bore, how's that, boring a bore, and then use a honing process to clean it up. The honing process is going to clean up the boring marks and get us our initial cylindricity. We're going to make that thing straight and round. Now, lots of high-volume OEM manufacturing kind of processes don't just treat that as the surface texture. They're going to use that first hone to get geometry and straightness, roundness, and then come in with a more controlled honing process to lay down the valleys. So we've straightened it out, now we come in with our really good stuff and lay down a rough surface that's gonna give us the valleys. And at that point, we control the size. So laying down the valleys with this rough surface is where size happens. And then we'll come in with a super fine stone and just kiss it for a little while. And I use those words strategically. We're just going to kiss it for a little while, not to size, but for a little while, for time or strokes. So we get a boring operation to clean up the casting, a honing operation to clean up the boring and make it straight, and then valleys and then peaks is traditionally how we handle this in, in high-volume engines. Got it. So the the valley operation, that is what you're actually using to go to size. From, exactly. When you finish that, you should. that's your finish size. If your finish size target is 4035, well, then your valley operation, your rougher grit, that's to 4035. The well, and it depends on how rough process. you're making. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say it makes it depends on the process because in some of these extreme cases, let's say your your target is 405. We're laying down such a rough texture, we may be target, targeting 404 because we know the finisher is going to have to do some eating of peaks. And our size okay. measurement was based on those peaks that are going away. So we do have to do a little tuning depending on texture and the size target. And this is this is the realm we're in, man. This is crazy. We are dealing with textures and sizes at almost the same level of control now. Yeah, we've got right. super tight size controls, and we're going to make it rough, get our size on rough, and know that we're going to do 11 strokes with a plateau stone that's going to move that a little bit too. So you could so, almost begin to kind of compensate that. We know what we're going to need. We're going to take a half, a thousandth out. Um, because of how rough the abrasive we're using to go to size is. 
So we're going to have to go a little bit uh, short of size in order to be able to take out that half a thousandth with our smooth finishing abrasive. That way we have the correct size as well as the correct amount of valley. That way you're not killing the valley to get to size, but you're also not leaving it so rough that you you have the right size but the wrong roughness. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a balancing act. We want a rough surface that we can plateau into size. And when we plateau it into size, we magically land in the right place of valleys. Right. And I think what we've seen, Joe, and from the trackside tech talks and some of the shops we've, we've visited, that for the traditional racing application, that balancing act, we're talking about tens of thousands of stock removal to make that happen, not thousands of inches of stock removal. Some of the old processes guys were using in their head is they were, you know, they would finish to size with, say, a 400 grit. And that may have been taking out a tenth or two tenths, or sorry, a, a, a thousandth or two thousandths of stock removal to do that. So, like I said, you, you're saying it's not about stock removal necessarily. It's about the time that you're taking in a number of strokes or cycle time to plateau. And that's, I think that's the key thing we're trying to get across is that it's kind of a, uh, a change in mentality because the old way was everything was based on stock removal. Now it's a combination of the two. Yeah, um, so an easy way to visualize it is um, you've got this random surface. It's got peaks, it's got valleys, and my last manufacturing process, the last thing I do to touch it, whether it's a you know super fine hone or uh, heaven forbid something you know like like a, a ballizer kind of process, whatever it is, we're going to remove peaks until there's enough material exposed at the top to carry the load. So we're not worried about size with that last fine honing process. What we're worried about is plateauing until there's enough material flat on top to carry the load. The last process we touch in a plateau honing process is not anything about size. It's about texture. Perfect. You're honing to size, and then you're plateauing for texture. I like that. Yeah, that's a great – I like that. We should put that on a T-shirt. I think we will, yes. The next Engine Performance Expo t-shirt, that's going to be what it says. Hone to size, plateau to texture. That's it. That's it, man. Nick Ferry is definitely oh, loving this. I got to tell you, Nick is out there right now, and he's about to click rewind. <laughs> we well, see you, Nick. Just, yeah, exactly. Well, it just shows that, you know, for the guys who are into engines, if you, if you have a passion for engines, right, if you listen this far into this episode, this, these, this is one of these big levers, you know, that we talked about last week, Mark. It's, this is a big lever you can pull for not only performance, but also longevity, durability, consistency. It's, this is something that you should really have front of mind. And it's not just for cylinder bores. I mean, it's, you know, surface finish for decks service finish for camshafts. I mean, it's everything in the engine. That's, you know, how I met Mark was through Billy Godbold when he was looking at these same things. It's not just we have the sizing of these camshafts right, but their problem was 
the texture, right? That what, what, how do we make these camshafts better? How can we support more load so people can be more aggressive in their valve trains? And it was all about not changing the materials. It was about changing the surface texture to create that load bearing area that Mark was just talking about, that texture that can support a load versus a texture that, that can't. And you really can't see that with your naked eye. Well, and so, and you're using the right words, Lake, but I don't know if the listeners um, know the nuance and the importance of what you said. Uh, for example, in the camshaft situation, it wasn't just the surface finish side of texture. See, in the world of surface texture, in the world of surface metrology, we talk about roughness, waviness, and lay. That, that makes up a texture. Roughness is the fine fuzz, waviness are the lumps, and then lay is kind of the direction that the scratches are going. And the texture in the case of the camshaft is super important because many of those surfaces shouldn't be straight and smooth. In fact, uh, many rolling high-stress surfaces are best if they're slightly crowned. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's a curvature underneath it. There's a crown shape in roller bearings. So we need to maintain a crown, not just a straight, flat, smooth surface. And then within the crown, the magic is controlling waviness, the lumps on the surface, in addition to the roughness. Here's a, um, a way of understanding, do I have a waviness problem? Tear down an engine and see if you see stripes. If you see stripes on a camshaft or stripes on a tappet, that's a waviness problem, not a roughness problem. If it's wide enough for your eye to see stripes, you've got a waviness problem. That's awesome to think about because, you know, a bit was there with Billy when all that they were going through all that learning curve and to see what they were able to do by addressing the waviness, finding the root uh, cause of the waviness and then solving it and seeing what they were able to do by eliminating that waviness is big because, you know, when you we were talking last week and I've heard you say this before, if you go way back in the, in the, the day – we talked about the size of things and that the origin, of a lot of the sizing equipment all came out of the revolutionary war, you know, trying to, I think you said what, make sure that the musket balls would fit inside the barrel of the gun. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it's making sure that we had the right size so things could be compatible with each other. Exactly. That was generation one of manufacturing. All right. So we, we begin there. So size is important. Then as time goes forward, we start figuring out that that you know contact geometry becomes really important, and that's kind of what we're, we were talking about here. Is that okay? If you've got this waviness going on here, well, then your contact geometry really isn't as optimal as it could be. But then there's a next level beyond that, beyond size, beyond geometry, and now it's down to that texture. And what does that texture impart? And that's really why I think this podcast today this topic of metrology is so important um because that's that next lever to pull in that obtaining that next level of performance so um i'll, I'll say here real quick anyone is still listening the, in the links on the, the description on the podcast both here and on youtube i'm going to leave mark's website do yourself a favor go to mark's website digitalmetrology.com and click on the notepad series 
watch them all in order. It will blow your mind because we're trying to describe all these things uh, with words, and he does a much better job of describing them with pictures. <laughs> and, there's, and there's videos, and, and the waviness video, when you're talking about waviness, I think about that waviness video you made on the Notepad series and how it just it – just, you can see it. When you see it, it just resonates. It's the old saying, Joe, right? The picture's worth a thousand words. I think a good video might be worth like 10,000 or 100,000 words. I'm pretty sure. Well, it's 30, 30 frames a second, right? So, you know, it's funny, right? <laughs> That's but, you know, there to you link go. to that point, um, and, and let me interject real quick. I So my job as a surface consultant takes me, you know, every different direction with surfaces. I looked back at about a two or three window of my consulting gigs where people had parts that worked and parts that didn't, and they didn't know why. And, you know, one supplier makes parts, another supplier makes parts. They're both to spec, but, you know, Fred's parts don't work and Joe's do. I threw that in there for you, Joe. Thank you. Um, <laughs> 80% of those problems were solved because they didn't look at waviness. So you can go become a surface metrology consultant and just run around the country and say waviness, 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 and, you know, <laughs> your new career. Waviness. Yeah, you win. <laughs> write you a check. You. <laughs> well, you you know, both of you guys know this. Everywhere I go, I have my Minitoyo SJ210 in my backpack. I am not afraid to check anything, anytime, anywhere, right? It, it's to me, that was the missing variable. All the years of doing uh, oil formulating, that was the piece that was the variable that I didn't even know was a variable. You just assumed that that was being taken care of correctly and it was consistent. And to to then finally learn, it's like, no, it isn't always consistent. Back to your, your Fred's parts and Joe's parts, well, what's the difference? Well, it's it's waviness and surface texture, things like that. And if you're not measuring it, you don't have any idea. And you really can't Absolutely. see these things with the naked eye. I got to tell you guys, my head is spinning, but in a good way. <laughs> and I think I like it. Now, as we, <laughs> as, as we close in on Put the... Put that on a t-shirt also. That's like. it. <laughs> I think I like it. But not everybody that's out there is a high-level pro stock racer or someone working in Formula One. But what I am enjoying and find to be practical is that everything that you guys have just covered applies to everyone all the way down the engine building uh, scale because it's going to save you time on break-in, right? Like if you can be more consistent with your break-in, if you can be more consistent in your process, if you can make your engines live longer, if you can make them more efficient, that is going to help the engine builder that's listening to Hidden Horsepower grow his business and make money, which ultimately isn't that what it's all about. Oh, exactly. It just makes their life easier. If, if you know that this is a variable, and it is, and you know how to grab a hold of that lever now and modify it and move it to your advantage, well, it only helps you. It helps you be more consistent. It helps your, your brand. It helps your customers feel better about what you're doing, and you can sleep better at night. You don't have to worry because you've you know, essentially conquered or mastered one of these uh, variables that can really play havoc uh, on an engine. Uh, and if you can make it run better, then your stuff runs faster, and then everybody's really happy because everybody wants to win races. That's that's the ultimate goal, right? Let's be real. Right? We all want to go faster. You know, you're, you're competitive. You want to do better. And this is one of those little secrets uh, that's been out there for 
a long time that you can actually begin to access now and use it to your advantage. Mark, at the end of each episode of Hidden Horsepower, we ask for advice for the next generation. I'm going to spin that in a different direction because uh, this whole show has been advice for the next generation. Frankly, it's been uh, nonstop information. But is there anything that we didn't cover? Is there anything that you want to put out there? Is there anything you want to tag this conversation with in addition to the links that we're going to put up in the description for everyone to go and check out that Notepad series because a picture is worth a thousand words, but I'm sure everybody's minds are sparking now on this topic. Is there anything you want to say to put an exclamation point on this conversation? Um, yeah, uh, let me let me say something super radical because this has been a, a very left-brained conversation. Um, we, as technology-minded people, performance-minded people, are, are always in the analytical side of our brains. A surface is not an analytical thing. It's a shape. It's a piece of art. And if people could go back to the pictures, look at the shape of the surface. Um, at digitalmetrology.com, we just launched a surface library where there are dozens of 3D surfaces. And it's a great way to just you know, get inspired to say, wait a minute, what are these shapes? And imagine yourself sliding up and down on this surface. Is it a surface you'd want to you know, use as a slide on a playground and run your kid's butt down? it um so i would really say you know have that childlike wonder when it comes to a surface excellent lake this one has been tremendous did you have a final question for mark or oh i was just i I just love that idea of like making looking at the this the shapes like he said even disregard the scale and just kind of put yourself thinking what would i be what would i want if I'm there, if I'm, I can look around, if I can feel it, what does this make sense? I, I love that idea of, vi- of looking at it more visually and being intrigued by it as opposed to trying to dissect it uh, and analyze it from a numerical standpoint, but just kind of look at it like you would climb a mountain and look out over the Rockies and see the, the landscape and just kind of soak it in. I, I love that idea of like the little micron me running around inside an engine, you know, looking at all the, the landscape, if you will, of all the surface textures. I, I'm done for the day now. I, I'm going to be in my own head the rest of the day thinking about that. Micron me. That's uh, no relation to mini-me. Micron me. <laughs> Mini-me's teeny tiny little brother. Well, Mark, that, awesome. <laughs> you've, 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 you've definitely inspired here today. This is what Hidden Horsepower is all about and uh, I appreciate it. It's definitely, it's funny because you you are, are bringing in like a real deep uh, conversation, but you made it easy to think about with your analogies. And sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's worth hearing the words to understand what the picture means. And so I think you did a great job. I appreciate you joining us here on Hidden Horsepower. It's been good hanging out with you as well at PRI, and uh, hopefully you will return. I'd love to. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Bye-bye, Mark. We appreciate you uh, (laughs) taking your time to come today and previously. And, again, we're going to get you back for more in the future. Don't you worry about it. Awesome. Thank you guys both. Appreciate it. There he goes. Mark Malberg, Digital Metrology. Wow, Lake. That was intense. Yeah, I I know that when I have my my personal kind of like scientist friends on the show we get a little bit intense 
like you said, but I think there's value there. Like you said, it's, it's laying out the groundwork. So if you listen to this, now you can go watch the videos and all that, and it will make more sense because now you have the framework to view all that from properly. It'll make a lot more sense, and you'll be able to get a lot further faster. So, uh, again, I can't thank Mark enough for when all the help he gives us. I mean, he has been a tremendous asset uh, here at Total Seal, helping us you know, see the impacts of all these different things we're working on and, and be able to meet in the middle, if you will, between the engine builders and the honing guys, you know, working with the guys like, you know, Ed Keebler and the guys at Rottler, um, when we're tr- telling them, okay, here's the numbers we want to see. Well, well, why do we want to see those? And, well, maybe we need to modify those numbers and so that the customer gets a better result. That's what's been so great about having Mark, I'm going to call him on the Total Seal team now, is that we can kind of circle the wagons. We, we, we can talk about piston rings. We can talk about honing. We can talk about surface rings. We can t- talk about oil. We can go full circle to create that ring seal soup now to help our customers get better performance and durability. And that's what the whole goal of the podcast is about, you know, is being able to unlock that hidden horsepower uh, and, you know, hidden durability. And I, I really feel like we got the right team of people now between guys like Mark and Dr. Cantor and Ed and all the guys from Rottler and, and just, you know, Keith and the whole team at Total Seal, uh, we got a pretty all-star group here now, I think. I definitely agree. And I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, the, the person who has introduced themselves at PRI to us, right? Hey, I listen to the podcast. I'm trying to uh, run my business, but also make my business better and make things better for my customers. So we listed like five things that this is beneficial and touches on all of those touchstones here in this conversation. So, no, great job. Very interesting. Mark's a cool guy, too, as well. Does a lot of media himself. And uh, I appreciate the show. This was great. Now, Lake, for people out there who are listening and they're like, all right, I'm building an engine. I need more information. Tell them how they can get a hold of you or Keith and the folks at Total Seal to evolve their project. Well, as Mr. Jones always says, make us your first call, not your last call. That way your options aren't limited before you go too far. Uh, So 623-587-7400 is the tech line. If you want to just go old school and have a conversation, then call that number. Uh, Between myself and Bobby and Kevin and Keith and August, I mean, there's over 100 years of engine building experience under that roof. So that's the easy thing to do, 623-587-7400. But you can also go to TotalSeal.com. Almost all of us have our email addresses on there. You can read up on latest things. We've got the links to our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is packed. We have 100 videos now, Joe, on the YouTube channel. Wow. Uh, From podcast episodes to how-to dyno testing, it's another great resource to be able to learn things from. And, of course, we have regular old email as well. You can send us emails. Uh, The request a ring form is a great way. you got a project you want to get an answer on. Put it on there, and we'll get back to you. Excellent. Great job, Lake. This one was tremendous. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir.
He's Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello, and this has been Hidden Horsepower. Remember, guys, check out all the social media, Facebook, of course, YouTube, follow Total Seal Piston Rings. More episodes to come, Hidden Horsepower, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and, of course, you can find it on the website. If you like the show, rate and review. That makes a big deal up there in the podcast listings. We appreciate you. You can also follow me, WFO Joe, and I I do my own podcast called WFO Radio. You can check that out. If you like drag racing and motorsports, it's up there right next to Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal. All right, guys, that's going to do it. We'll see you next time right here on Hidden Horsepower.